Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mina Kimes is the nothing personal word of the day. It's a Samson sit down. And I've been trying to sit and meet with Mina for a very long time. And Mina, thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us here today. The audience has been waiting. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited um, for the show. I mentioned this, but I don't really know you, David, I don't know much about you. I actually don't, I haven't kept up with your appearances on, you know, the Levitard. So uh, I'm very open-minded. Uh, I'm, yeah, this is blank slate for me. Well, I, I, I like that. My name is David. We can yes. do like it's speed, right. speed getting to know you. My name is David and I am a lawyer. I went to the University of Wisconsin and after law school, I went to law school. I started a business delivering newspapers in Europe. Then I went to Wall Street when the internet started and people didn't want newspapers anymore. Spoiler alert, they still don't. And then from Wall Street, I helped my then stepfather buy the Montreal Expos and he asked me to help run the team. And I did that, ended up for 18 years, uh, ran the Expos and the Marlins after he wasn't my stepfather anymore, still did it. And uh, then Derek Jeter bought the Marlins and said he would like to run the team without me. And I immediately joined CBS after meeting with and signing with UTA. I joined CBS, started Nothing Personal with Matthew Coca, and now Nothing Personal is part of the Dan Lebitard Network. And that is my quick, quick story. Where in Wall Street did you work? Morgan Stanley. Okay. And what years were, were those? 1996 to 1999. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I always, um, you might, I'm sure you know this about me. I started my career covering Wall Street and finance and um, yeah, I, I, I remain fascinated. I still um, probably read more business journalism. I, I read a lot of sports journalism too, but I still keep up on, uh, keep up with, with business journalism. And, um, you know, back when I was, and I still read a lot of books about it when I was a Reporter, I loved reading books about Wall Street in the 80s and the 90s. And there's so many, some of those classics. I think uh, Barbarians at the Gate is right behind me, which is one of my favorite books. And I always recommend to people. Have you ever read it? Yes, you chose that to be in your studio, <laughs> your home studio. I like that. We can talk about that. When people ask me what Wall Street was like, I say it was like Wolf of Wall Street, except I <laughs> there was no Leonardo DiCaprio. There was no Margot Robbie. And I did not ever toss little people into a Velcro target. Other than that, it was pretty similar in terms of what we were doing. We were making a lot of money and we were helping other people make a lot of money. What I did was concentrated equity positions. I would help diversify people's portfolios. Let, let's say a Mark Cuban would get get a ton of Yoohoo from Broadcom and then diversify. Hmm. Instead of having one stock for 10 billion, you can have a hundred stocks. Well, that's not so bad. You could have been in junk bonds. You could have been in uh, I was not in any uh, one of, of the that. mortgage guys. Yeah, yeah, you're fine. I don't want to say I didn't make money. 
because I did. And but I've never had a problem. If you're making other people money, then it's okay to make money yourself. I don't like the people on Wall Street, the, the Jordan Belfort types who made money with reckless indifference toward other people making yeah. that yeah. does not that never interested me. Making rich people richer, I was perfectly fine with. And making people who had never had any wealth but had built a company and then came into all this money, helping them do their trust and estates and learning things they never learned. That's how I really cut my teeth in Wall Street. Got it. Yeah. It was uh, quite an education for me because um, I didn't have any interest in working in finance. I didn't even study economics in college, but working at Fortune Magazine, covering investing the markets, then ultimately becoming an investigative reporter. A lot of it was learning about um, just not just micro macroeconomics, but um, investing just generally principles on the job. So you, you mentioned college. I was going to get to this later, but you just gave me the opening. Uh, you're a Yelly, is that correct? That is correct. So what college were you in? Uh, I was in Davenport. Uh, for those who are listening, and I would say probably 99% of the people don't know, they have a residential college system at Yale that's kind of like uh, Harry Potter. Honestly, that that really gave us a good uh, explainer tool where you get sorted, essentially, unless you have a legacy kind of relationship into one of these colleges. Um, and uh, Davenport was the one that I, the Bush family was in, but it was a random selection for me because nobody in my family had ever gone to Yale. So my I, I went to Wisconsin, but my daughter and my son went to Yale. One oh. is still there, going to be a junior. My daughter graduated uh, several years ago, uh, both in Pearson. And the reason that okay. Yale interested me is that I was, I'm was i lucky enough to be involved there and, and, and on a uh, university council, which is just under the board of trustees. And we spend a lot of time talking about the makeup of the classes. And this, I wanted to talk to you, and I, and I had a chance to talk to Pablo about this as well. But it's important, and I assume that you think about the affirmative action case in the Supreme <laughs> Court and what went on there. And the, the my view of it, that that... I've made pretty public is that while I don't agree with the conservative court in general, if at all, I believe the makeup of the undergraduate classes is not going to change by as much as people think. Mm. And when you, when you read the opinion or what you've read about it as, yeah. a, as a Yale, where, where do you come out there? Um, gosh, a lot of thoughts on this. I guess I'll address what you said, which is the notion that it won't actually affect the makeup of the classes. Um, I think, for a school like Yale or Harvard, and by the way, it's really a small sect of American universities that are going to be affected by this at all, which I think bears mentioning at the top of every discussion when we bring this up, like it's the tiniest, but of course these schools not only occupy a large, uh, like a big role, a big space in the public imagination, but do have a disproportionate uh, impact on people in power, or I guess it's a, it's a not impact, but so much, uh, it funnels. Right. Um, and that, it certainly helped me in that regard. Uh, but anyways, um, I, my understanding of reading, not just the decision, but a lot of the reactions to it, the legal interpretations is it's likely that schools, these smaller elite schools that aren't reading, you know, hundreds and thousands of essays will find other ways to, diversify, find other sources of information, leaning on those essays. So suddenly, whereas you couldn't just say it before, now you have to put it in an essay and the schools are still very interested in diversity. So 
to your point, I think it's, it, it is likely that the effect will be muted by the efforts of the schools. I'm really interested in, and this isn't um, happening, at least to the best of my knowledge, it's, it's, there's a few schools around the country, private schools, uh, that have experimented with ways to focus more on class-based diversity and then hopefully flowing from that um, sustain or grow racial diversity as well. But that takes some effort. It's a thing that has to be very deliberate. I'm someone who believes both class and racial diversity are important mm -hmm. in the American education system. And I think that what we're going to see now is a radical reimagining of how you end up at the place where a lot of these institutions want to be. Do you feel pressure because of the size of your platform to talk about issues like this? How does that? No. I feel pressure not to. No one, I, I don't know. I very rarely asked about um, non-sports issues these days. I feel pressure when there are issues that intersect with sports, though, like um, issues of culture, um, gender, race, or whatnot. And then when those things collide with the sports world, as often is the case, then I feel pressure because of my platform to be a voice. I would argue, maybe persuasively, Mina, that everything now intersects with sports. There was a rule at CBS when I started Nothing Personal. You can talk about anything you want, just make sure you can tie it at some point, somewhere to something sports related. And let me tell you, I found a way to talk about anything I wanted <laughs> and then bring in sports somewhere along the line. So I don't say this flippantly, the pressure of the platform is something that I think about all the time. <laughs> and what you've built and the audience you've built, you are an opinion influencer. And yeah. you may not want that job. Social media is strange because you're, you didn't apply for that job. You just entered into a space where all of a sudden it became part of the job that you do. But then all of a sudden you have the concomitant pressure to talk about everything. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as someone who's kind of, you've embraced this role or it's kind of a, a later career shift for you. Um, every time there is a story that's not just, sports you know my 95 percent of what i not more than 95 99 what i do at espn is talking about sports like hardcore sports x's and o's football but every now and then there's a story um sometimes intersecting with football and when th that happens i feel more pressure and i you know i have trouble articulating like what it is there's just like this feeling inside me that's like okay here you are you got the platform you have the opinions you've done the reading or if not you who else right um and then there's also there's like a little it's not an angel it's more of like a like a accountant or something on my shoulder who's like yeah but this is then your, your day is going to be ruined by this and it's going to be a real pain in the ass and you're going to get like all these angry emails and stuff do you really want to why don't you just stick to football today and, and when those stories come up, there's that little wrestling match and the accountant almost always loses on my shoulder. And I don't know why. I don't know what it is that compels me to be like, ah, I, I, I gotta, I gotta say something. I don't know what it is. Because you're responsible and intelligent and you can't succumb to shut up and dribble. That can't yeah. be what's in your head. I don't know if I'm always, I don't know if I always have the most intelligent things to say about these issues though, but. Oh, I think it's important as a leader. Leaders are not always right. Opinion influencers are not always right. They just always have opinions. And the best ones are the ones who have opinions that are thought out. So the, what I use the platform for is when I want to talk about things, and sometimes it makes Coca crazy. Sometimes it makes members of my family crazy. 
is that I will think about a lot of different issues because I don't want to be stuck in just sports because there's so many things that interest me in the world. And I do tests, Mina. I will, I have a friend who is a, a, a lawyer and a pretty influential member of society, whatever that means. I will have a day where something happened in the sports world. So big, I think it's the biggest story ever to come across my desk. I will call him at the end of the day and he'll say, hey, and I'll say, hey, I had a day. He said, what happened? I'll tell him what happened. He'll say, didn't hear that. <laughs> and it is the most unbelievable thing. How yeah. could you not have heard that Jose Fernandez died? Yeah. How, how is that? You didn't get that? And I hear, is that your dog? That's my dog barking, yeah. Totally fine. You can, <laughs> you can let the dog in. Is the dog, does the dog need to take a walk? That means there's a delivery. That's 99% of the time when he barks, it's because somebody's somebody's delivering something. Are you concerned about the 1% in any way? <laughs> the 1% I guess would be a robber. I don't know. My dog's very funny. He's very funny. He's very logical. Like he doesn't, uh, July 4th just happened. Not bothered by fireworks not bothered by thunder. He's only barks at what he perceives to be imminent threats, which are delivery people. And I guess the 1% would be like a home intruder. That's so never happened. Wouldn't it warrant finding out the provenance of the bark? On no, the you got to play the odds. 99%. Come on. It's a delivery. I get, I just get so much shit delivered to my house too. It's the damn 1% that'll get you every time though. I hear you on the... The sports thing, though, I think sometimes we lose sight of how our world, which is sports fans who are most people listen to what we do, um, not only care about things that the rest of the world doesn't care about, as you talked about, but they um, consume stories very differently from the rest of the world. Um, that's something that uh, it, it kind of inflects what I was talking about earlier, which is when, whenever I make the decision to speak out on something. For example, the Deshaun Watson story, which was very outspoken about last summer um, when he was being accused by you know, dozens of women of sexual misconduct. In the sports world, when I would speak out about it, there'd be like a lot of blowback. You'd see people defending him, Browns fans. If you took that story and brought it into the rest of the world, people were stunned. They're like, wait, how is this not like met with like universally should? And, you know, I, I think the majority of people were pretty upset about it, but like, it, 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 it was such a good example of how our world can be, uh, and I think sports in general can be, can lead to a lot of reality distortion, frankly. But doesn't that inform when you're talking to the people on your shoulder what you want to comment on? Because the fact is that if you can help, this is how I view it. If I can educate my audience, not tell them what to think, just give them two sides. Talk about the Roe v. Wade. We did a whole show on Second Amendment, a whole show on Roe v. Wade when the Supreme Court overturned that, not giving my view where I am, which I'm absolutely pro-choice as, as, as you can imagine, but my view is just learn about it and then decide yeah. so we can actually have a conversation well, and you're able to do that too. I think, what, and, and again, I'll go back to the Watson story. Every time I spoke about it, I was stunned by how little people actually knew. New York Times did incredible investigative reporting and when I would just bring simple facts that had been unearthed, People sometimes that I was on television with had no idea. So I think for me, um, going back to kind of that original question I asked myself, why am I doing this today? A lot of it is like, well, you know what? You did the reading, so share it. And it's not necessarily because I perceive myself to be an expert or a moral authority. 
but just someone who cares and is interested in, in learning and then hopefully conveying that to others. One of the things that makes you so good at what you do is you take a lot of information, you distill it down into a soundbite, which many people would erroneously say, well, that's easy to do. It's actually the hardest skill there is, is to give people the information they need that they can digest and take in and then actually be able to process. And that's why it's very difficult what you do. And I give you a lot of props. People in our business, not everyone's good at it. And Dan's done a lot of talking about smart journalism versus dumb journalism versus, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, the fight of what Stephen A. Smith has done to debate television and, and the dumbing of, of, of journalism. I take that very seriously. I don't want to continue that trend. I don't want to just stand and yell as loud as I can about nonsense. And uh, it's difficult. It's tiring. There's a balance though, right? Because... Um... People always ask why we talk about the Cowboys so much on ESPN. Well, guys, I see the numbers. That's why we talk about the Cowboys so much. I see the numbers even for my own podcasts, my own digital clips when I talk about the Cowboys. They're unfortunately, for those who, if you don't like it, it's a massive, there's a massive audience for it. And, and it's not even just fans. People who hate the team love to hear people talk about the team and rip the team and whatnot. And I think when you go back to kind of what you were saying, which is like well, sports debate and that balance between information and entertainment is something there's, it's a balance also between, I think networks, media companies, like your guys trying to figure out, okay, well, our audience seems to want this. We don't want to always cater though to every little thing that they want, but there is a little bit of a balance there. Um, and I think that's something that's like a tough decision that we always have to make every time. Like you can't be dead serious and nerdy and PBS about it. You have to find that that sort of balance. Well, entertaining certainly helps. I, I When you said nerdy and PBS, were you looking directly at me? Was that like <laughs> a judgment? You look no, like an old nerd. I was just thinking about how... Um, uh, people always, you know, it's like how polls, everybody lies. People always say they want, like, people on the internet always say they hate debate and screaming, but then, like, our first, you know, our the highest rated shows don't reflect that at all. So I think that people kind of lie about what they actually want to consume. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. Don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SAMSON. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Quentin, Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Don't you think there's room, you know, in terms of your talent? I heard you on, uh, you were on a podcast, remind me, the Pivot podcast. Were you on that? It's my friend Ryan Clark's podcast, yeah. And did you say that you did not feel qualified to work in a front office? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely not qualified to work in a front office. Can we talk about that? Do you know what it takes to work in a front office? To, uh, to make that judgment. I'm curious why that was your bellwether where, listen, my name's Mina Kimes. Yes, I'm a Yale graduate. And yes, I can speak intelligently about lots of things. But a front office? No, no. Well, I and think if that. I had, if I was to restart my career, I could. But I think um, the idea that I could just go from my current job laterally to a high-ranking job running an NFL team, I would be skipping over so many steps in learning how to do all of the small things, managing the cap, negotiating contracts, evaluating all of this, all that stuff. I've not done that. Um, so I, you know, it's not me trying to be, uh, to convey false humility. It's me respecting the levels of work that go into doing something at a high level, which I don't think I, I haven't done any of those things. Do you listen well? I try. <laughs> Are you decisive? Uh, I'm getting better at that. Are you able to be wrong ever? Yes. You may work in a front office. Okay. Maybe after a few years of uh, working my way out. Imagine, imagine if you were offered a job as a GM. What would you say? I, I guess I could tell you as president of a team for all those years. I was brought in to be president. I had been on Wall Street, had run a company, but I had not run a baseball team. I'd run a different kind of business where the product was not baseball players. And I was brought in to run a baseball team. I did a lot of listening and I got more experience as the years went on. Way different at 40 than I was at 30. Way different every day. And so really what it took, if you ask, and people have asked me for years about the qualities that were needed, and it was listening, and it was understanding that you may be wrong, and it was earning the respect of the people around you by acknowledging what you don't know. And you would be able to go in and what's wrong with saying you don't know how to manage the cap. You'd have someone around you who does, but you'd be the decision maker. I generally feel like I don't want to do things that are unearned. That's just a personal, like a outlook on life, I Whose guess. decision is that? Is that yours? Yeah. And I, I, let me put it this way. If someone like me who had all my qualities went in at that type of level we're talking about, I would not think it was a good decision. So it's not like I'm applying an undue standard to myself here. And what you were describing earlier, by the way, going from working in finance to being the president of the team, that doesn't strike me as that dramatic of a leap, even if it's a different industry. We're still talking about financial skills, a lot of the business ops stuff, not that much of a leap. Going from being a talking head about football to running a team, I actually think is a very dramatic leap. I am not trying to be humble. I am being 100% honest about what I what I personally think it takes to be good at the job. I think people who are good at that job have worked their way up um, 
yeah. So didn't I would, you make the lead from first. finance to now? Aren't you the lead NFL analyst? The underlying, the underpinning of my job going from being a financial journalist to being a sports writer was the same, which was reporting, structuring stories, investigative work. It, in, in many ways, it's, it's it's more similar to what you described, going from being a business person to being a business person in a different industry. It's it's all about the uh, the tools that are the same, you know. Even if the field is different, my belief is that the tools it takes to do what I do are very very different from the tools it takes to uh, to run a football team. So you'd be surprised how important it is to know how to be front facing, which is you have great practice in that. that I could do. <laughs> I could do that. I could do the so the rest conferences. You'd be shocked. <laughs> Actually, what part of nothing personal? Really, what keeps it going and what has grown it from the first episode where only my mother listened to now what I consider to be successful and still growing is that we'll break down press conferences and statements that are made by people doing the job that I used to do. Mm. And they're so bad at it. Yeah. Do you, when you're interviewing someone, are you thinking to yourself, oh, my God, are you really saying this? Do you give them a chance to get out of it or do you make them go deeper? Well, when I was, in, I don't really do interviews anymore, but when I was a writer, it was mostly athletes. And I, you know, for me, it was, an, they were so rarely about like, I'm going to catch them or I'm going to expose. It was just like, how can I try it? Like the goal was always to show the world what it's like to be around this person. Cause great thing about covering professional sports is there's already inbuilt, people are already interested in Von Miller or Jalen Ramsey or whatever, but they don't know that much about them. They don't actually know that. So, so I, I view, I viewed myself more as a conduit. Like I was just like, okay, let me try to like show the world this. Um, what you're describing though, uh, like kind of uh, judging. It's not gotcha journalism. It's I can't yeah. believe what you're saying right now. You're yeah. not properly media trained. And yeah. it's not your job to tell the athlete to stop talking. It's not your job to tell the team president or owner to stop talking. Well, so my job is just to criticize them now or to explain, like, we'll, so like I said, I don't interview uh, them anymore, but we'll play the coach talking or the GM or whatever. And then I get to come on screen and say why it was bad or good. And yeah, I'm constantly shocked. Um, especially because there's so many, uh, own goals like there's so many moments where it would be so easy i think about this watching every time i see rob manford talk i mean that's more that's your uh, field not mine I'm, I'm far from an expert but every time i walk watch him the predominant the most active part of my brain is the editor and i'm thinking here's what you should have said here's what you should have said and i'm like what do you do like it, it it's let's like the stepping on a rake like i'm like you don't have to you don't have to say any of this. You would, it would be so much easier. You're making this so hard on yourself. And I feel that way a lot about people in power in sports. There are, there's a lot of that. I love that expression. I may use it from now on. I've never used it before stepping on a rake. And yeah, obviously like, what I'm doing is you step on the rake and then the top of the rake hits <laughs> you in the head. Yeah. I never heard that. That's hilarious. Meaning, yeah. It's like show Bob does it. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm totally stealing that from you. But he does it so much. It explains, so it's not just Rob, and I'm not defending Rob because he's had his PR issues. It's pretty much every commissioner has problems with that. I, I would argue Goodell's actually gotten pretty good at talking. I was thinking that watching this latest Manfred stuff where he was talking about the Oakland and all that, I was thinking, man, you make Roger Goodell look like William Jennings Bryan, like a great orator of our time, because when was the last time you saw Goodell really slip in public? He is actually very good at saying nothing and staying out of trouble. And it's probably why he makes, you know, a zillion dollars. 
I'm trying to think of the last situation where he was forced. Maybe it's the Dan Gilbert situation, especially with what came out a couple weeks ago. The, the just what's going on with the email leaks and everything else. What is interesting is that what Goodell had to do with Snyder, uh, I found that it wasn't as trained a message as it could have been. And I did find that he got in trouble for that. But maybe maybe you didn't, and you're closer to it than I am. But I, I had some words to say about that. I've been very critical of him, the NFL, everything surrounding the handling of Snyder, um, really letting him, you know, have undue influence over his punishment, all of that. I think that the NFL has largely escaped scrutiny. It has all, I would, the vast majority of the public ire has been directed towards just Daniel Snyder, who everyone hates, right? And not the NFL. And, you know, every now and then, People say, yeah, it's kind of messed up that they didn't publish the initial report. But for the most part, I think Goodell's really escaped uh, heavy criticism. And uh, yeah, I, I just think he's he is very careful about putting himself in positions to not make himself the story. Do you think that he skated on the CTE issue? Gosh, well, you know, uh you mean like from 2010 or yeah, so, so or until yeah, recently? The original and, and still comes up because there's still some stories from time to time about how the proceeds are being yeah. divided and paid out. You had the big story that we covered, Coke. I can't remember when it was about how they had different levels the of race norming. What, yeah, it's, it's that was a major issue that the NFL stepped in. And do you view them as having skated through that? I think that. Over the last five years, the public's appetite for those stories has declined. And that is why the NFL has escaped scrutiny. It's not because I mean, you could argue um, journalism like the we in the media should be more focused on. I mean, there's been very prominent NFL players who have committed suicide over the last few years. There has been some pretty gruesome stories but um i i personally feel that and this is i say this with resignation and i and i do my best to bring them up and obviously with the two tongue of iloa story last year this came up again a bit more but there is a great deal of public fatigue around uh talking about cte and football as well as the perception i think there's some accuracy to this you know we before there was a massive cover i mean the the this was a massive scandal with the NFL and their handling of it and everything. They everything up. Everything they up. Knew everything. Yes. So I don't, I think now at this point, there's this feeling that it doesn't really compare to that. Like every time there's a new story, whether it's about the race storming or um, their handling of um, vets or retirees or, you know, new guys in the news, it's a mixture of the belief. And, and I think some of it is correct that the NFL isn't like covering things up the way that they used to, but also there's a lot of public fatigue around talking about CTE, which is sad. What What's even more sad is it's not just the CTE. Generally the public, we love the violence of the NFL. We love the violence of MMA, UFC. We love um, hockey fights or crashing into the boards. And it doesn't matter because we don't, have to live with Jim McMahon now yeah. who can't talk and can't at, communicate with anybody because he's he's absolutely not who he was. That's not in our conscience. And that's the part that I struggle with, because if while you said and we agreed debate television, audience likes it. I talk Cowboys numbers go up. I make more money. I get bigger audience. I'm going to talk Cowboys. 
if people don't want to hear about Jim McMahon, then I don't have to talk about him. And if I don't talk about him, you don't talk about him. Guess what? He doesn't exist. And this goes to what we were kind of talking about at the very beginning, which is that little calculus that you do. Because, I, you know, I talked about the personal cost of it, right? Like uh, you get the angry emails and the threats and whatever. But, you know, if, if I talk about uh, Dan Snyder or Sean Watson or whatever for 15 minutes on my podcast, it's probably going to do worse numbers, frankly, right? And I see that. And when I, when I encounter, when I have to do that math, I decide not to care. And I think that's something, you know, we in the media have a responsibility every now and then um, to kind of take our lumps in the pursuit of something more important than getting more attention. What if we split the lumps? And let me explain what I mean, because I've spoken to Dan about this concept. You're concerned about your numbers. I'm concerned about my numbers. You <laughs> acknowledge the fact that when you talk about certain topics, your numbers go down. Yet you've got a voice in your head that says, this seems important to talk about but it's going to cost me. What if we had a union of podcasters, of smart <laughs> people who have platforms and audiences, and we got together to basically promise that we would talk certain issues, even to our detriment, but we would split the downside? Yeah, I think we would uh, We would have a lot of scabs. <laughs> Um, and look, I want to, I want to give my, I want to give my audience credit too, because, you know, I'm like, Oh, I know that the numbers would be worse maybe, but I, I, I do hear from a lot of listeners and viewers that they do really value it. And it really does. It, it's, they think they view it as part of the total package. And it's part of what makes them comfortable with the fact that they watch football and they're listening to a football podcast twice a week, knowing that there is at least some a moral core, I guess, or somebody who wants to at least try to engage with things bigger than football when the right moment arises. So it's not entirely, uh, you know, uh, sacrificial or whatever. Um, there, 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 it's a, there's a, there's a full picture. There is huge business in smart and people may not realize that, but there is. And while, while we may worry about it, and we worry about our audience and we we do we have studies done and we get numbers showed to us by the people who are responsible to pay us. On the other hand, there are people who crave it, as to your point, don't want to admit it, yet when you look at your numbers, your rankings or your revenue, if you dedicated a certain amount of your week to issues that were meaningful to you, to one side of the shoulder, I promise you that your W-2 would not go down. The I mean, the... People always ask me, what do you owe, like not what do you owe Dan, but like what would you attribute your success to or whatever? Was there ever a pivotal moment for you in your career? And something I always point to is working with Dan really showed me that people were interested in me, that I didn't have to pretend to be something else, that I didn't have to dumb myself down or change my physical appearance dramatically or whatever, that there was actually an audience for the things that I brought to the table. Um, and while I can speak cynically about people's desire for debate and screaming and Cowboys talk and all of that, and I believe all that is true, um, you know, I have an NFL podcast. It's co-hosted by a woman and a dog, and it's the most popular non-fantasy football podcast at ESPN. People aren't all that bad. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, football fans really crave something different. And I try to remind myself of that as well. Like you do have to give, 
give that was a very long-winded and self-aggrandizing way of saying, I agree with you. We need to give listeners credit. Did is Dan, would you describe Dan Lebatard as your greatest mentor in your career? Um, I think in what I do now, because I had mentors when I was an investigative reporter, uh, all of whom now work at ProPublica, <laughs> who were uh, very big, uh, important mentors to me when I was a journalist. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, being an analyst and opinionator, particularly um, working with him, it not only was it important, but it came at a really pivotal point in my career because it was very early on in that shift for me. So there was something that happened a couple of weeks ago, too, when uh, the New York Times closed its sports department. Yeah. And it's part of what happened when they purchased the athletic and the Los Angeles Times decided that they were not going to do box scores or gamers anymore. And I've been speaking to all journalists I can since then, young and old, trying to understand. And, and I have a personal, let me disclose that I have a personal stake in this. The business that I ran was delivering the New York Times to Europe same day. That's what I did. It was called News Travels Fast. I brought the Sunday Times to all over Europe on Sundays. And back then there was no internet. There were no apps. There was nothing. It was the actual Sunday Times. And so I love, I still get, the New York Times delivered to me every day. And you can call me old, I'm good, because I have the app, I have the phone, I have all the new technology, but the impact of the reality is what I think about. What the New York Times did makes perfect business sense. There was no other choice, not even close. But realizing that now we've gone down a slope where what newspapers are going to become, do you, as a former journalist, current journalist, someone who feels about this space the way I do. How did you react to that news? Not too surprised. I kind of thought it was in the cards when they bought The Athletic, um, just because it was a pretty large expenditure and... Half a bill. Yeah, uh, which, you know, however you feel about the value there. <laughs> I think, um, you know, they, they bought it. They bought hundreds of sports writers. So... You know, I think they, it, it seemed natural to me that they would probably look at their own desk and wonder if there were a merger possibility, something, anything duplicative, whatever. Um, you know, I think people point to it as being part of this kind of larger trend of sports desks around the country shutting down, shrinking, and that's certainly true. But the athletic also, like, those were hundreds of jobs that didn't exist before, or they were parts of those sports desks shutting down. So I think it's a little bit more of a complicated um story than than just the death of local journalism because the creation of that entity uh itself was an expansion of sorts there's obviously there's a union aspect to it which complicates the issue yeah i mean and that's that that you mean the athletic can't make money so. right yeah the um money. i feel like Right now, everyone's there's still like such an appetite for sports journalism, like local sports writing and beat reporting and analysis, but nobody is quite sure exactly how to not just how to monetize it, which obviously, you know, but also how to structure it. Like, what are the actual do people want a local news desk? Do they want someone who's going to practice every day, or would they rather have a national NFL writer who's doing analysis on the team? I feel like that's something that's still being sorted out at the moment, frankly. 15 years ago, I sat in front of the Miami Herald and the Fort 
Lauderdale Sun Sentinel and asked them why they were not traveling writers anymore. And they went through the numbers. The expense of sending beat writers on the road to 80 games, it's a long, it's hard to be a beat writer in baseball. It's every day there's games. And we went through the math of it. And it's hard to argue with numbers. You can do it with this special feeling you have inside for the good old days, the feeling of nostalgia. But the numbers don't lie. And what the athletic tried to do is replace an area where there had been a complete subtraction, retraction of how business was done. The New York Times comes in, buys, then realizes, wait a minute, we can't make money. No wonder all the papers stopped traveling their writers because the appetite for this type of press has gone away. That's where I disagree with you, though. It's, Tell me. I don't think that the appetite has gone away. I think that companies still haven't figured out how to monetize it and structure it. I mean, the amount of people who consume sports news has not shrunk. The problem is it's been um, just split up among so many different platforms. There's the social media component of it as well. There's the fact that certain platforms are giving away, certain platforms are charging. Everything is a fucking jumble right now in terms of payment structures, but the appetite is still there. When you look at the amount of people who listen to sports podcasts, who read local sports coverage, the numbers are still high. The problem is um, technology, frankly, and the fact that a lot of these companies still haven't figured out exactly how to structure it all. But it, it used to be that if I wanted to score, I had well, to yeah. call okay. nine, The appetite for scores has got away. <laughs> I'll give you that. 9761313 when I was young, you would yeah. call and they'd update every two minutes. Then headline sports started, Jerome Jurenovich, Vanner O'Wright, and you could get it at 20 and 50 after the hour. Local news, 1125 to 1130. Paper the next day, in a pinch, you'd wake up and see the paper to see what your team did. It's gone. Yeah, you don't, yeah, what's gone you needing someone, and this is like a bigger thing story with sports television and sports center and and all that as well. And, and a big part of the reason why analysis and debate shows have become so prominent, right? What's got you don't need someone to tell you what happened anymore. However, as sports fandom has continued to grow, you see the numbers for people consuming live sports, the appetite for explanation, for color, for fleshing that out, that has not gone away. I agree. So I think the problem right now is that transitional phase and then again figuring out how to monetize people who can actually explain illuminate get you inside things that's still there people still want it uh they just reporters really used, to be, used to be who you got your information from you don't now it's not they don't get the scoops anymore the scoops go to the national guys many of whom are employed by you but not you espn and it's on social media so the what has to be instantaneous it's not a matter, you don't wait, forget, wait till the next day. You don't wait for the next minute. The why is where you come in or I come in because I don't break news. Are you a news breaker, <laughs> no, would you say? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a news breaker. Thank I don't want to be a news breaker. That's tough life. That's terrible. I have no interest in that. I'm already addicted enough. Are you on threads, by the way? I had, I joined it. Uh, it's not quite there for me yet as a product, but I'm trying to, I, wanna made, make, I wanted to make sure I planted my flag. And That's all I did. It's just another obsession. Yeah. Now, another thing I have to check, another red number on my phone when there's alerts, et cetera. But the point is that the flag, wh what happened? Quick. Why it happened? That can breathe a little bit. And that's the antithesis of what the quote unquote beat writer is. 
The beat writer is the one who had the deadline, who spoke to the players in the clubhouse. But now the players speak for themselves. I would say um, someone who reads a lot of beat reporters in football, the best ones are the ones who are learning to use their access to give you the why. There are certain football writers, beat writers, who I do, I always make it a point to read because they are in the class, they're talking to the players, they're talking to the coaches, and they've, they're learning the game and they're explaining it. And so I would say the types of skills that are valuable are changing. So how do we, if you are give a talk to young students, mm. if you go back to Yale as an example. <laughs> Go to Davenport. Have you? There's a there's a thing called the Pearson T. Yeah, they, 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 we have them too. Yeah, I've done a couple. So yeah, so I've done I've done that. And everyone is they they want to be you. They just don't understand exactly how to get there. And they're worried if they don't get there by the day after tomorrow, they'll never get there. Which is exactly what we were worried about when we were that age. And it turns out we were totally wrong. There's a million twists and turns. Yeah. And it's okay. Failing's okay. But when you go back now, what what is your best advice for people? who actually look at you and meaningfully say, I want to be you. Well, the first thing I say is something you just said, which is I tell them, I didn't know I wanted to be me until I was like 30. Like, so that rush 30. to be like, I, yeah, I, that was when I switched from being a business journalist to a sports person, That's right? That's not old. It's not, but it is to a 22 year old who thinks that they have to have the perfect internship lined up for the perfect job immediately. I had so many freaking random careers and twists and turns like yourself getting to where I got now. And I always tell them you have to have some humility and, and or at least recognize that you're what you think you're going to be doing in five years is probably not what you're doing in five years. But for those who are actually interested in uh, either writing or analyzing sports, I tell them learn the sport um, because, and this is really kind of cuts to what we were talking about your greatest attribute as a beat reporter, or as a podcaster, as a radio host uh, will be someone who really knows the game right now. Um, and I'm not saying that I necessarily do, but that's what pe people want to be. Like they want someone to explain to them what the fuck's going on. And I find that the best young writers, bloggers, reporters are the ones who I can tell have put in a lot of work to understand the game. And by the way, that can be understanding the business behind the game. That can be understanding the X's and O's, but it's that understanding that's so valuable. I am fascinated by that answer because I give the opposite answer. <laughs> and I want to I want to test this hypothesis with you. Uh-oh, we're running out of time. People say, oh, I'll be, I will get you out on time. I promise no, you. I Thank don't, you for your I don't time. care. <laughs> Last question. I would say your statement and then I want to hear your view. Okay. I want to get into baseball. I want to be the president of a team. My advice is not to go learn baseball. My advice is if you want to go to law school, that's what I did. If you want to go work in lacrosse, if you want to go work in football, if you want to go work in soccer, take a job, any job, be the best at that job, and you will learn skills that you'll be able to apply as your road yeah. circuitously leads to wherever it leads to, because 90% of the people who say they want to be me, if they knew what I did, they wouldn't want to be me anymore. And that's what happens in sports. We'd hire people. They want to work in baseball they'd be gone within a month yeah. because they thought it was just hanging out with players. But that's advice for someone who wants to, who on the business side. I was talking about the advice I'd give to someone who wants to do what 
I do, which is communicate for a living. Now you've round through a very roundabout path arrived at a similar spot, but I don't think your career path is something that could be easily replicated or something that would be encouraged. Um, I think, wait, you just said encouraged. Well, yeah, I wouldn't, if I was, if I met a 20 year old, you know, college student who's interning at Goldman Sachs and said, I want to be the next David Sampson. I want to have a podcast on uh, Meadowlark. I wouldn't say, okay, great. Here's all the wild shit you have to do first. You have to go sell newspapers in Europe. Then you have to go be the president of a team. Then you got to go to this. You got to work on Wall Street. You can't, you can't make so it up. I mean, I want to keep going, but I appreciate your time. I told you I'd have you out in 45 minutes. I really appreciate that you did this. Would love to do this again one day. And one of these moments we will be on together, maybe on Dan's show or somewhere else. But it has been a pleasure. I really do appreciate you. That would be great. I enjoyed this. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.